you're sitting there nervous your bag has been packed your med kit is on your back you don't know what's coming you know it's cold outside you know there will be victims outside but what type of scenario are you going to have to deal with all of a sudden he walks inside and he tells a little bit about what's going on then he says go it's time to run outside look around where where's the person you're supposed to be there there they are they're against the tree there's blood there's what now and that's where the training kicks in our special guest today is the one who taught me how to be a wilderness first responder This is the Way to Greatness podcast, where we explore the journey from failure and mediocrity to success and greatness. And now your host, Ari Gunsberg. Welcome back to the Way to Greatness podcast. Today we have a guest with us, Jerome Gabriel. He is a professor at St. Francis University, and I, Ari Gunsberg, had the pleasure of meeting him when he taught me everything there is to know about being a wilderness first responder. Welcome, Jerome. Great to be here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can you first tell us a little bit more about what you do about the, the wilderness first responder or in the popular vernacular, the WFR called the woofer, and tell us more about that? Uh, sure. Uh, I've been an instructor for the Wilderness Medical Training Center for about 10 years now. And part of that job is going out to various universities and outdoor programs and scouting organizations and those sorts of places to teach about wilderness medicine. Part of the time I'm teaching courses such as the one you took, which is the Wilderness First Responder. And some of the time I'm teaching uh, kind of a lower level course called a Wilderness First Aid course. But in any case, the whole goal of the programs is just for people to have a little more confidence when they're outside, helping them to understand through some failure in the process of uh, learning that there's a right way and a wrong way to treat people when they need help in the outdoors. <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned failure. The learning through failure because there were there were some moments in the course that I took with you where essentially I, I felt the full brunt of that failure and I was like, oh no. <laughs> yep, that is all by design. It's right. right. No, I'm saying it's it's good to hear you say that now because now I'm like, oh, okay, so that was meant to totally meant to be. Okay, perfect. Because <laughs> <laughs> in the moment it was very scary. The level of intensity in the class, like you said, it's 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 about bringing people into this point of failure so that they learn what not to do in the moment, right? Yeah, and I kind of when I start teaching any of these wilderness first aid or first responder courses, one of the very first things I do on the first day is I just tell everybody, uh, look, my goal by the end of these courses is not necessarily that you know and have memorized the book and can do everything to exact perfection. Really, my goal is that you've seen and understand all of the bad things that can happen in the outdoors. And you use this knowledge to, in fact, prevent most of those things from happening so you don't have to treat them. Absolutely. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Yep. I'm really excited to tell you about this next thing. Basically, if you have WordPress, you should be listening. Kinsta is awesome. 
They're a managed WordPress provider. They are there to provide you with peace of mind about your WordPress websites. Go to ariguns.com forward slash Kinsta today to check out everything that they have to offer. I think you're going to love it. Again, that's ariguns.com forward slash Kinsta, A-R-I-G-U-N-Z.com forward slash Kinsta. That's K-I-N-S-T-A. Can you tell us about your current position with St. Francis and what you do currently? Sure. I should probably back up and give a little bit of the story as to how I got there, because I guess it probably illustrates. Absolutely. So I started off as a undergraduate student getting a degree in biology, thought I was going to find the cure for cancer, was a, a lab rat, lab coat, sticking my face in a microscope and in a computer every day. And I did that for about three and a half years. And about three months from my first graduation, came to this realization that I can't sit in front of a computer for 40 hours a week for the next 40 years of my life. So it was kind of one of these aha moments. I had to figure out something else I wanted to go do. Spent most summers working at a camp up in New York State for youth and adults with mental and physical disabilities. And so I kind of decided that I think maybe I want to go work in camping and want to go uh, do that route and be outside a little bit more. And so I found a program in British Columbia, Canada that was all about outdoor leadership. And I enrolled in the program. And about a weekend, I realized this isn't really for people who want to work in camps. This is for people who want to be professional mountain guides. And so, <laughs> this was a college bachelor's program? Correct. Yeah. So I finished my first bachelor's, got a bachelor's degree in biology. And now I was working on my second bachelor's degree, this time in outdoor leadership. Right. You know, talking about failure, the very first, tri- before the school year even began, we get together and you have to go do a five-day backpacking trip down the Pacific coast. So we're pretty much hiking the beach and tidal zones and everything. And I was woefully out of shape, did not realize what I had gotten myself into. And I pulled the instructor aside on the very first night and said, you know, maybe this really isn't. Um, <laughs> but, eh, maybe I should just like pack it up. And he encouraged me, said, no, you know, stick with it. This first day was really hard. You'll get the hang of it. And uh, and obviously I've stuck in the field for 15 years. So something changed. Right. Got back from that trip, really got involved in that program. And about two to three months into the program, I got an opportunity to start guiding professionally uh, with one of the guiding agencies out in the uh, area there. So for about three years, then I guided in the Canadian Rockies, uh, backpacking, whitewater rafting, rock climbing, caving, rappelling. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Did that. Uh, great opportunity to just go explore some of the amazing wild areas that British Columbia has. And then I got a phone call saying that there's an opening for a graduate assistant working with an outdoor program back in Ohio. I said, that's amazing. What's a graduate assistant? And they told me, well, you, you get a free master's degree and you get some professional experience. I said, so. <laughs> <laughs> Are you from Ohio originally? I am. Yeah, I grew up just south of Bowling Green around the Findlay, Ohio area. Okay, and wow. So the, the Bowling Green is like really, really close to home. Very much so. Yeah, uh, about 30 minutes from where I grew up at. Okay. And as a graduate assistant, were you working with that long even back then or you were working? So back then, uh, Brian Cavins, uh, who's another amazing guy that I got to meet through there, uh, was my direct supervisor and was the one in charge of the outdoor program. And then he ended up, grad. he got his doctorate and moved on to a different position. And that's how I kind of rolled into taking over the outdoor program for about a decade. Okay. You know, just to catch our listeners up, I, we met 
at Bowling Green University during a wilderness first responder course, at which Jerome had told us that he had been there for, as you said, like about a decade teaching and running the outdoor program and had since moved to St. Francis. Yeah, I had finished up that decade uh, there at Bowling Green, got my doctorate, and then in fall of 2014, I went to the University of St. Francis. I've been teaching on the faculty side for about five years now, but I still try to get the students outdoors as much as I can. Right. And you're building up an outdoors program for St. Francis as well, right? Correct. A combination. We've got a academic program where students can enroll and get a degree in outdoor leadership or outdoor recreation. And then we also have a student-run recreation club, uh, which is an opportunity for students to get outdoors. And they do outdoor trips two to three times a month all year long. Wow. Are you the faculty advisor? for that club? I am, yeah. That's awesome. That's really cool. Your first woofer course, your first wilderness first responder course that you took, what was that like? Oh, wow. It was a while ago, but um, (laughs) I I can distinctly remember uh, it was a gentleman in British Columbia who was teaching us the course, and he had a very different teaching style to the one that I kind of use now. So I typically tend to give about 90% of the information and I'll hold about 10% of it back. So there's always something when a student is put into a scenario, there's always some minor thing that they don't know that they kind of have to problem solve on the spot for. This instructor did things kind of the opposite. He would give us about 10% of the information oh my. and then throw you in and you were just kind of winging it most of the time. And then when the session, when that particular scenario was over and you sat back to talk about it, you'd say, well, here's all the areas where you guys messed up at. And I know looking back, I was always a little frustrated because I was like, no, I probably wouldn't have messed up if you had told me at least a little bit more of what I was supposed to do. <laughs> I'll bet. Just to backtrack a little bit, our course that we had done was a what they call a hybrid, where we do a lot of self-study beforehand, learning a lot of the information, of the, of the book information, and then all of the practical application stuff is in the course over the course of five days. Now, in your situation, it was probably more of the of the traditional format, which meant that over the course of what, nine or 10 days or something, he was doing some book knowledge, then taking you out there and then book knowledge and taking you out there. Yeah. Yep. That was the the way that it was done. Although what he would typically do is flip it. He would take you out there. You would attempt to do something. You would fail horribly at it. And <laughs> Then they would bring. Then he would bring you in the classroom and teach you what you should have done. Oh my! So it was a different style, and I, for me personally, I don't think I learned as much as I could have from that because I never actually got to put into practice the right way of doing something. Right, I right. Was continually doing it the wrong way over and over again because you were just trying to guess. That's incredibly frustrating. I remember that I overheard you talking about getting your certification to teach the woofer course. Can you tell us about that journey a little bit? Well, if the um, very first woofer course was one of my most frustrating experiences, the course to become an instructor was definitely a close second, um, <laughs> and but for very different reasons. It was just probably the most challenging academic experience that I have ever gone through. And this is after getting four degrees and having to defend a dissertation in front of a number of faculty members. The two-week experience that I had to become an instructor was worse. Wow. Um, it's the Wilderness Medical Training Center. They have very, very high standards for all of their instructors. And so when you go into that course, you are, even if you think you know wilderness medicine, the extent to which they expect you to know wilderness medicine is so much higher. 
It's a 14-day program, and the first week of it is them pretty much pointing out to you all of the things that you still need to learn. Uh, right. So it's just constantly being told, you don't understand this, you don't understand this. But then it's the correct material is given, and then some insight into how to teach that is also given. It's the equivalent of attempting to memorize a 200, 300-page textbook in a matter of 14 days. Wow. Okay. And then if I recall when you were telling about your experience a little bit back then, I think you had explained that like as you were, as you were getting up there and trying to give a, give a lecture on some of the material, they would turn around and say, no, here's where you messed up. 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 And it was, again, it was, it was a lot of formative learning where you, where you were try, doing, trying, seeing what could be done better and then, and then doing it better. Is that correct? That absolutely. Yeah. The owner of the company would ask questions of us during our presentations that we were giving. And as we answered the questions, we would know if we answered it correct or not as to whether or not he started taking notes. We knew once he pulled out the yellow pad of paper and started writing notes, we knew we had messed up. Kind of like, kind of like when we saw you with your little phone taking notes. <laughs> so technology has changed a little bit over the decades. So all of my notes now go onto the phone. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the simulations. And I, I know we don't want to go into a tremendous amount of detail because it's much better to have surprises, but you know, just some broader information about them. You use very high quality theater fake blood as well as some makeup to create the reality of people who have just gotten battered, bruised, broken. What are some of the types of things that other instructors use in other simulations to make them to make the simulation more real? And for our listeners, in a course like this, what happens is is that everybody gets stressed up, and there's a number of people who are chosen as patients or the people who the bad thing happened to them, and then the other people are the rescuers, and that becomes a simulation, and everybody simulates what would happen in a real wilderness emergency. So, what are what are some of the things that you've seen or heard of people doing to create reality in these simulations? Um, for a lot of the instructors, they we get some very basic instruction on how to create wounds and what they look like. But for a number of instructors, those who have a lot more time than I do, some of them have actually gone out and taken courses in theater makeup or moulage is what it's referred to as, where you're dressing up particular wounds in order to make them look a little bit more realistic. Right. Uh, now, a lot of people just use YouTube and try to look up some good YouTube tutorials on making a wound or what does burnt skin look like or oh, wow. uh, how can you get uh, blood to move in a particular direction across the skin if you want a wound that is you know, maybe bleeding away from a major artery as opposed to towards it so it's not covering up something. Uh, so there's a lot of very, very highly skilled instructors that can turn a normal looking human being into somebody who's gone through some major traumatic incident in a very <laughs> and they do it quickly enough that the class doesn't get held up terribly right correct okay some of the some of your students from saint francis had mentioned that oatmeal had been used i don't know if it was in your course or a different course i think it was maybe one of those um urban legends that gets told uh <laughs> did, did you ever use oatmeal that that's not exactly an urban legend uh okay. it has been done in the past typically and you know not to really disgust your listeners at all but uh when we have the symptom of nausea or vomiting, having students just make the noises is generally good enough, but occasionally in some of the larger scenarios, we want it to be a little bit more of an intimate experience uh, between the patient and the <laughs> Yeah. 
that's when the patient is typically slipped a package of oatmeal that they try to just keep tucked in their cheek until the proper moment when it comes out. Violently. Oh, yes. Yes. Very violently. And typically, <laughs> they project out towards their rescuer. Uh, and it, there's a little bit of humor involved in it when we talk about it afterwards. But in terms of a rescuer, it also helps them to understand you know, how to protect yourself from body fluids and other body substances that Absolutely. may be coming out of your patient. And you know, do you really need to be that close face-to-face with them? And if they start acting nauseated, maybe you do need to move away or clear some space or give yourself a bit of a safety zone there. Right. Right. Absolutely. I do remember that there was times in our course that you essentially threw up the gauntlet and said, hey, you know, uh, see who can who can go ahead and essentially get quote unquote bodily fluids on somebody else with a fake blood and stuff, you know, to just to help everybody learn, you know, you got to keep your personal distance. You got to you got to protect yourself. You do you do want to keep those fluids away from you because you do need to keep maintain that barrier. Absolutely. And that's why one of the first things we talk about in the course is that the number one most important person in any of these rescue scenarios is the rescuer. The rescuer rescuer has to stay safe. The rescuer has to stay out of a dangerous situation. And even body fluids like that can cause that dangerous situation to occur. Right. Have you ever heard of simulations that were so intense that they created unexpected or even unwanted reactions? That does happen occasionally. And (laughs) more so of the time, uh, it's very early on in the week when most people haven't gotten used to the sight of the fake blood yet. And for some individuals who are not very comfortable around blood, uh, and again, just for the sake of your listeners, the, the stuff that we use does look fairly real. And when it, it's just a vegetable-based powder that when you apply water to it from a spray bottle, it activates and some parts are darker than others. So some of it looks like it's been clotted. Some of it looks like it's kind of scabbed over. Some of it can be fairly wet and free-flowing down. So it can look pretty realistic. And Absolutely. I occasionally had a, a student taking the course who has a bit of a queasy nature around blood and didn't necessarily realize how realistic it was going to look. And so uh-huh. it causes a bit of a stressful reaction in that person. Uh, And then normally after the first scenario or two, from the student standpoint, they get pretty used to seeing it. So it's no longer something that really bothers them. Okay. Have you ever had somebody pass out? Uh, no, I don't believe I've ever had anybody go that far. All right. Can you explain to our listeners why it's so important to create such realistic simulations? Absolutely. I mean, the whole point of this course is that a student who goes through it has a good working knowledge of how to treat a number of ailments that may occur in the outdoors. And when you're in an outdoor setting, things are going to look real. There's going to be blood. There will be broken bones. There will be somebody who maybe needs CPR. And in a controlled classroom type setting, we could just say, this is what it's going to look like hopefully you'll be okay in those situations. But instead, it makes a lot more sense to present the student with as realistic of a situation as possible. So that way, when something does arise, they can think back and say, oh, this is very similar to such and such a scenario that I had in the course. So it tries to bring reality into the classroom for the student to make the learning as concrete as possible. Yeah, I know for myself that towards the beginning of the week, 
when we were running into those scenarios, I was jacked up, like yep. a tremendous ASR, tr- uh, autonomic stress response, completely flying high, shaking, out, uh, not quite uncontrollably, but just shaking all over the place and just trying to figure everything out. And while I'm not going to say that I totally got rid of it, towards the end of the week, I was certainly much calmer and much more able to say, okay, just work through the steps. Step one is this, step two is this, just go through and do each individual thing. And that's that's how you're going to get through this and, and create the best solution possible. Yeah. And that's exactly what we're going for in those scenarios. Uh, just because as you experienced, especially as a student coming in on one of the very early scenarios in the course, you know, all, again, for your listeners, a student who comes in on day one of this course has already spent 40, sometimes 50 hours online training, studying, uh, taking some online tests and exams. So they have this huge knowledge base already. And then they come in on the first day and we spend a lot of time just over the basics of basic life support. Here's how to roll somebody. Here's how to make sure they're doing okay. Here's where you would begin CPR. And we start funneling it all together. And then we present them within the first two hours on the first day with their very first scenario. And for many of these students, you mentioned ASR, that autonomic stress response. This is the body's natural reaction to stress. And some people get that jacked up, hyper adrenaline rush type feeling. And especially when they're running out for that first scenario, they see the fake blood for the first time. And all of a sudden, that 40 hours of studying that they had done and that two and a half hours of training that they had just got this morning goes completely out the window (laughs) looking at a person going, I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing right now. Yeah. And that is why we do these sorts of scenarios because that moment is important for them to have because it's a learning moment, but I want them to have that moment in this controlled setting in the course, not when they're actually out in the field and something bad happens to a person they're taking out on the trip. Absolutely. This next question, feel free to deflect, but if you if you don't mind answering, what's the biggest emergency that you have that you have ever had to deal with in the field? Uh, for me personally, I was leading a caving trip down in Alabama for a week, and during one of our longer underground periods, we were in a cave that was about six and a half miles long underground, and typically this trip round trip takes about six to seven hours. And uh, we had made it to the back of the cave. We were working our way back. And one of the students in the group uh, fell and got her foot wedged in a hole. Um, Well, she was jumping down off of something. Her foot got wedged into a hole. And she felt a pop. And uh, we looked down and her foot was already swelling up to the size of a softball. To the size of a softball. And we were still three to three and a half miles from the cave exit. so. While it wasn't necessarily life-threatening at the time, uh, she was unable to walk anymore. And so you think if you're on a backpacking trip or a hiking trip or a canoeing trip, a, a bum ankle can be a bad thing, but you can sit them in a canoe, float them down the river, or throw one person on either side of them, and you just walk down the trail supporting them. Right. Uh, well, in the cave, it's a lot of three-dimensional climbing. So it's not just walking, but it's also climbing up rocks and sliding down rocks and squeezing through holes and dropping over ledges. And so because of all of that, we ended up having to use the rest of the group and almost picked her up and carried her through 90% of the rest of the cave. And you're, so you're saying there were so few parts of the cave that you could essentially assist her to walk that basically you had to carry her the whole time. 
Correct. Yeah, there was almost no areas that were able to be walked on. So we would, through areas where we would typically be just um, like army crawling through, uh, she would try to crawl as much as she could. And we would have two or three people crawling behind her, lifting and supporting her hips and her leg, trying to get it through. So that way it didn't bounce off of things or twist anymore, or injure anything any further. Wow. And so that normal trip that was six to seven hours, we were maybe an hour, hour and a half of normal hiking to get out of this cave. And it took us six hours to do that last um, typical hour worth. Wow. How big was the group when you were out there? Uh, We had, I think, nine in the group. So there were eight of us then that could actually assist her to get out. And it was just physically exhausting experience. I'll bet. How how do the rest of the students react to having to help? That's the one good thing about most wilderness medicine scenarios is that if somebody in the group needs help, I've never seen a group not want to step up and help them. So the group was totally engaged with the experience, was willing to listen to any directions that I was able to give them. And they really helped her out a lot getting her out of that experience. That's awesome. Watching people come together like that is typically tremendously inspiring, at least for me. You know, it's it's one of those times when people just, I guess I'm trying to think of the way to describe it. Like they all, all their minds somewhat become as one and they just move forward together. And it's really cool when those types of things happen. How about some of the people that you know? What are, what are some of the most intense emergencies that you've heard of happening with people that you know while out in the field? Well, unfortunately, the the outdoor field is often a dangerous place and things do happen. Nature is an uncontrollable force. And so I have had uh, two experiences uh, that are relatively close to me uh, of individuals who have passed away in the outdoors. Um, Due to one was due to an avalanche experience, uh, one was due to a large rock fall. Uh, but um, those a, are a rock fall, meaning rock falling or falling off of a rock, falling off of a rock um, from a very high distance. So, uh, and these are unfortunately just the reality of working in the outdoor industry. Um, all right. industry sports have their risks, and you know the outdoors is not any different than one of those. And that's that's one of the reasons why we do trainings like this in order to help leaders in those situations understand how to avoid situations that may put too much risk uh, into their groups that they're taking out. Uh, but sometimes you still can't control for all the factors. Absolutely. This I'm going to say that this is irrelevant for the last two scenarios that you gave me, but for the first scenario or for any other emergency scenarios that you've heard of that, that the people were alive, essentially, how different do you think the outcome would have been without a woofer nearby? Oh, in, in many cases, it's uh, a complete opposite scenario. Uh, many of these, without having the proper training in many scenarios, common sense tries to take over and you think, oh, we just need to get this person out of there immediately. And that could actually be causing the issue to get even worse. Um, You're saying because people would put themselves into unsafe situations that they shouldn't have and then potentially creating more patients. Uh, correct. Or even just they don't really understand what's wrong with their patient. Um, a classic example of this is a, an issue called volume shock, where a patient may have injured uh, an internal organ that has a lot of blood flow in it, like the liver or the 
the spleen. They may not be showing any outward signs of injury. Uh, there may not be any external bleeding. They may just have a large bruise over the one area, and they may be suffering from some internal bleeding quite a bit, but all that they're seeing on the outside is a bruise. Right. And if you don't understand the signs and symptoms of that, an increased feeling of anxiety, the paling cyanosis of the skin, uh, increased heart rate, and these things occurring, if you're a lay person who doesn't necessarily have that training, you may say, oh, they're just a little scared. Why don't we just sleep this off? Right. Uh, no, this person is actually in, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of danger. We need to get this person to a, a doctor immediately. Right. I love the saying that kept on popping up where you would say with, with stuff like uh, what you just mentioned, the volume shock and other things, you're like, this is not something that you're going to fix with a pocket knife and a straw in the field. They need to see a doctor and have surgery. I guess you have a lot of MacGyver types coming to these types of courses. Uh, unfortunately, yes. I, I don't know. I often get the course uh, or students in courses who have watched one too many Bear Grylls episodes and they're expecting to be able to fix things or fix people by using their pocket knife and you know disassembling a pen and it's just <laughs> not how wilderness medicine actually works. Right. I know you go out, you've been going out for quite some time. You said you were up in the uh, Canadian Rockies for a while as a guide. What is the deepest into the backcountry that you've ever been? In other words, the furthest away from medical care? Probably when I take, uh, every year I take a group of students up into the boundary waters of northern Minnesota. And as part of that experience, sometimes we have to go to find some areas, some new areas to explore. We have to go quite a ways out. And uh, probably the farthest I've been out there is uh, we've been to points where it would be two to two and a half days before somebody could be at a hospital. Wow. And that's that's even including helicopters because you were beyond the reach of cell phone service or satellite phones? Well, we would have had a satellite phone, but the area that we were at would not have had a region that was uh, large enough for even a plane to fly on. We were doing a river route. So oh my. Uh, if there was a major injury, we would have had to take uh, at least a full day of paddling to get to a lake that was large enough where a float plane could have landed on it. And then you've got another day of just getting that person out to advanced medical care. Wow. So, so in, yeah. in situations like that, is there any particular way that you prepare to be so far out? Um, well, one of the things is one of, that you mentioned is that uh, having appropriate communication equipment. So having something like a satellite phone uh, is useful, but uh, more so it's just considering the types of equipment that you're bringing with you. So for me and the program at the University of St. Francis, uh, when we do trips, we have multiple styles of first aid kits that we take. So we have weekend first aid kits, which are smaller, contain the basic devices that you're going to need and are going to be useful for single day overnight trips, or maybe if we're three to four hours from medical care. Uh, when we move into our more advanced trips, like the Boundary Waters trip, we have our much larger expedition first aid kits, which contain a lot more items in them and more of some of the basic items too. So that way, if an incident were to occur, say someone were to have get got a, a deep gash and we're trying to keep it clean and flush it, um, 
I may carry one small bottle of iodine in the weekend kits, but I may carry two or three bottles in the expedition kit. Right. Uh, so that way we have the ability to treat something for a longer period of time. Right. And even, I think, I, I think you had mentioned this to me also, even potentially having a bat, not a backup, but extra supplies, not in the kit, but in the gear that you have in the canoes and stuff, right? Correct. And, and even just being able to improvise with some of the other gear you have. So uh, you may not have enough stuff to do multiple splints using manufactured splinting materials. And instead, you may have to figure out how are you going to use a splint using a sleeping pad that you're sleeping on or make a splint using these screens that are protecting your stoves to cook on. Right. Man, I've got all these buyers on my website, but how do I get other people to realize that others are buying? Enter Proof. Proof is the solution to help you convert buyers. You can increase your leads, your demos, your sales by 10% in less than 10 minutes, all by showing people what other people have done recently. And Proof has the perfect platform to help you do that. Check it out, ariguns.com forward slash proof. That's A-R-I-G-U-N-Z dot com forward slash proof, P-R-O-O-F. Who's somebody in the outdoor field who you admire? Well, there's quite a few of them. I think probably one that is the, always been very impressive to me is Jeanette Stosky. Uh, she's the executive director of the Association for Outdoor Recreation and Education. And she has been, prior to that, I knew her as the, in, the director of the outdoor program at the University of Michigan. And she's just always been someone who I have admired her ability to inspire others to work harder and to experience more. Uh, as she has moved into the executive director role with AOR, uh, I've always enjoyed seeing her on a yearly basis going to our national conference, but also just seeing the work that she's done in trying to move the outdoor industry as a whole forward, whether that's more recognition in the national and like in the federal government level. Uh, or more recognition just in general society and seeing more equipment and those sorts of partnerships being made to further the mission of the uh, further the mission of our field. That's awesome. So, I mean, a true leader, basically, that that's what she is. That's awesome. What are some things that you love about the backpacking culture or general outdoor culture? I think in general, and maybe this is just from my experience being in the field for so long, I have not really met too many outdoor people that aren't just genuinely nice people. Um, you know, I've experienced a lot of the business world and the education world and the outdoor world and, you know, all those different fields have their own quirks to it. But one of the things about the outdoor realm that I've always enjoyed is that generally it's, you know, really friendly, outgoing people who are genuinely interested in other people. Not a lot of angry loner types out on the trail, huh? Not a whole lot. <laughs> at least not that I've had the experience of meeting. I've had the same experience. Is there anything that you would like to see improved about the culture? Uh, I think the biggest thing is just diversity um, in the outdoor field. If you go to uh, a large conference or something, you see typically the 18 to 44-year-old white male is kind of your, your typical outdoors person. Okay. And I, I would love to see that become more diverse. And there are some amazing agencies out there that are really working to make that happen. Uh, Roomap is the executive director of Outdoor Afro. 
and the work that she's been doing with that organization and the chapters of that organization that they have all over the country are doing some awesome things to get people of color into the outdoors and experiencing uh, a lot of things that, you know, maybe they didn't necessarily grow up with that opportunity, but right. it's here now. I do want to point out uh, to our listeners that it's it, this is definitely not a case of any type of racism where it just ends up being where people are making sure that it's only 18 to 44 year um, white males, but it's a matter of availability. If somebody doesn't know that the outdoors exist, or or obviously they know that it exists, but if somebody doesn't understand what that they're able to go out whenever they want, that the, you know here's the here are here's the gear that you can get and you will be safe out there, not safe but as safe as can be, and you know here's the steps and here's what to do, and if nobody has that person who says, hey, let's go out and, and go on a hike and let's go out and go backpacking, let's go out and go camping. And if they don't, if they never have that opportunity for the experience, then it's just not even within the realm of possibility in their head to ever think, hey, maybe I should go and do this for a living. Maybe I should go and get more involved. Maybe I should go and do my own backpacking trip now that I went on a backpacking trip with somebody else. So it tends to be that in the inner city or or even in culturally that it just doesn't end up being available. And therefore, we just don't have people making that move into that career. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, there's just historically, there's just been a lot of barriers to people of color getting into the outdoor industry. And I think the industry as a whole is starting to recognize that and it started to take the opportunity um, and the initiative to start removing more and more of those barriers. And not to say that there's not more work that still needs to be done on it, but at least I think it's been recognized and it's starting to be worked on now. And I think as a whole, the industry is also starting to recognize that there's more to outdoor recreation than just the extreme high adventure stuff. I think for so long, uh, your experience in the outdoors has only been celebrated if it's been summiting a mountain for the first time or right. rafting a class five river for the first time. And you know, for a lot of people who did not grow up in the outdoors or you know, it wasn't necessarily part of their culture or their family or anything like that, uh, being willing and able to celebrate going for a hike in the woods for the first time. Uh, camping out at a state park for the first time and seeing those as just as valuable and just as impactful outdoor experiences uh, is something that the industry is, I think, starting to move back towards, which I believe is a good thing. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree. I find that any, almost any exposure to the outdoors so far with anybody that I've taken out there has been beneficial. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, uh, one, I, I work with a group of kids right now. Uh, they're, you know, 14 to 16 or so with, um, they're in a kind of semi-organized homeschool program together. So we, you know, we go out, we, in the winter, we haven't been hiking that much, but you know, when I take them out hiking, these are kids that other people might say, Hey, they've got this going on. Hey, they've got this going on. Hey, they've got this going on. You know, all these different things and that they want to, I, I guess you could say pin on them. But I, you know, when I go out with them, I just see kids who are just genuinely happy to be outdoors. And I don't think it's just a blindness on my part. I think it's a matter of when you give the kids the opportunity or, or anybody really the opportunity to enjoy something like the outdoors, which is so fantastically beautiful and phenomenal and, and engaging. But with our current world, we just don't we don't have that opportunity to engage with the outdoors like that. Yeah, I'd agree. Let's go back to the woofer for a minute. The, the woofer is built around at least the one that we are part of from WMTC, it's built around systems and processes. You know, apply the systems, apply the processes and do it in the right way and in the right order and the outcome should be basically predictable. Do you have any thoughts on how we can use the same types of concepts and apply them to our lives? Oh yeah, I think the the more skilled that you become at whatever it is you want to do, um, the more that you start to see the application of those skills in a bigger picture. 
I think, for instance, in one of my classes, uh, I teach a lot of leadership-based courses, and I'm in charge of the leadership minor at our university. And I have a wide range of students, but right now in particular, I can think of a student I have who's an accounting major. And his background is all numbers and Excel and understanding uh, financial graphs and stuff that is awesome that he knows how to do that because I am not that type of person. But when I talk to him about leadership, he's able to take more of the things that he is skilled in, being the numbers, the organization, and that, and begin to apply it into this system of leadership. What does it mean to be organized as a leader? How does that affect your ability to lead? What does it mean to be detailed as a leader? How does that affect your ability to lead? And he's able to take the skills that he does have and insert them into these new systems, and it's making him even better. Uh, That's amazing. Well said. Yeah, I, yeah. I believe the idea of being able to use a set of systems to improve yourself and to become more successful is absolutely how things work. Amazing. What are some ways that the rules of the wilderness apply to everyday life? <laughs> Everything is unpredictable is probably the easiest one. Yes. Uh, you, you don't necessarily, you know, you think you might know what's going to happen when you go into work today, but something is going to cause that to change. So being able to adapt on the fly, being able to think outside of the box, being creative, uh, those are all the sorts of things that I have to use every day when I take groups into the outdoors. And they're also the same stuff that I have to use every day when I walk into a classroom to teach a subject. Uh, maybe today my PowerPoint's not going to work. Maybe today the network's going to be down. How can I adapt? to it. Maybe right. today when I'm hiking, this uh, big snowstorm is going to come in. How are we going to adapt to it? And I think being adaptive, being creative, uh, those are things that occur in the outdoors and they absolutely occur in the front country too. Nice. What's your definition of greatness? Uh, I think mine probably flows a lot from the leadership courses that I teach. I really believe that true greatness comes from someone who knows who he or she is, but also can inspire those around them to know who they are. I think the people in my life that I can think of who have been great uh, were not focused solely on themselves. They knew what they could do. They knew what they were good at. They knew how to lead and to work well. But I would say maybe 10% of their time was focused on who they were. They spent most of their energy focused on trying to build others up. And I think that's truly what made them great. That's that's a, that's actually a really good definition. I love it. I do hope to write that down and put it into the, the episode notes. So. <laughs> You know, so people can grab that little soundbite quick, not the soundbite, but the, the quote. I think it's a very good, very well said. Good. How do you personally work towards achieving greatness each day? I think a lot of it is just constantly trying to figure out how I can do things better. And most of that, at this point in my career, I've got a pretty good handle on how I can do my, my job and the skill-based side of things. But I think there's always room for how do I improve my abilities to work with people? And that's whole part of, I think, being great is those who can really inspire others to be the best they can be. I think that's probably where I keep wanting to build on and work on each day. Is uh, how you can inspire others to be better than they are. Yeah. yeah. And amazing. I think the reason why that's still going to be an ever-changing process is because every time you meet somebody, they're a new person. And you, I can't inspire one person the same way that I inspire them next. And so you've got to learn people, you've got to understand them, you've got to know what drives them. And then once you know all of that, then you have the ability to work with them and help them to be better. Right. Uh, and it's it's amazing also that you recognize that because there are, I want to say, um, previous generations of teachers, there were perhaps a lot of people who felt that this is the way that I teach and this is how you need 
need to learn and and uh, to to shift that over to a parallel. This is the way that I inspire, and you need to be inspired by this. But like you said, every single person is a different person. So one what inspires one person is not going to inspire the next. The more that you're able to, like you said before, also adapt to that and and inspire each person in the way that they're best inspired, the the better you're able to work towards achieving your own greatness each day. Yeah, and I think that's that's probably why I have such an issue with many of those help, self-help type books is somebody wrote them saying, if you want to be better, this is the way to do it. And well, you didn't write that book for me because you don't know me. You didn't write that book for Ari because you don't know Ari. Like, if you really want to help somebody be great, you have to know who they are as a person first. And what does great really look like for them? What does it mean right. for that person to be inspired? Right. Well, which is interesting, by the way, because it sounds like almost if the person had started off the book saying, I'm not sure, but there are certain types of people this book will help a lot and other types of people who this book will just not help at all. You would have had no problem with that. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that would be a great intro, which nobody's probably going to write. <laughs> interesting. It's I mean, meaning it's the, it's the people who write the books and say, no, this is definitely the system that you need to use. And, and that's a very good point because a lot of times I'll read books and I'll say, there are aspects of your system that I love, but there are other aspects of your system that just don't click with me at all. And so, mm-hmm. so too much, you know, you know, somebody handed me a book, I don't, um, somebody handed me a book and he's like, this is the book on being successful or something. It was like uh, 10X by Grant Cardone. And I, I haven't yet picked it up and read it. And I, I may, but I mean, but just because it worked for you and just because it worked for him doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean that it's going to be the right system for me, mm-hmm. which is a very good point. And, and something I think that we could all use to do, um, do better to remember because, I mean, this is part of the reason why this, why the publishing industry is such a huge industry because they're churning out tons and tons of books every single year because some of them are going to work for the masses, some of them aren't, and some of them are going to be really good for some people and some of them aren't. And that's just, that's that's human nature, I think, right? Yeah, I would agree. All right. Do you feel like there's any way that the wilderness can help people achieve the greatness within them? Um, well, being that it's my field, I think the obvious answer would be yes. Yes, uh, but. I I agree. I mean, <laughs> I love the outdoors too. No, but it, it let's let's rephrase that question. Then that's that was a, that was a good point. I, um, well, no, I, for people, I think your question is fine because I think the one thing that I've always enjoyed about the outdoors is it really tends to be almost this great equalizer for people because you know, the it you don't have to be incredibly strong or incredibly like physically strong or incredibly you know outgoing or a natural leader to just go out and experience the outdoors. And the outdoors treats everybody the same, uh, regardless of who you are, where you come from. For some people, the outdoors humbles them, and that's what they need. For some people, the outdoors inspires them, and that's what they need. And for some people, the outdoors gives them an opportunity to be who they are, and that's what they need. And so, yeah, I think the, the outdoors is an essential part for people who are really looking to achieve that greatness because I think it gives them an opportunity to really strip away all of the excess stuff, strip away all the stuff that maybe they do or they act because that's who they've been told they have to be. And you get into the outdoors and you're just who you are. Um, And I think that really can help people on that path. Despite that self-help books will not work one size fits all, you feel like the wilderness (laughs) is a one size fits all. I'm pretty happy with the wilderness. I, me, me too. (laughs) Again, me too. I just, 
I just, you know, I, I, I'm finding the irony in those two statements, which I, I don't think you're incorrect. I think mm-hmm. if it's 20 degrees outside, it's 20 degrees outside, no matter who you are. Yeah. But some people, like you said, will find it humbling and say, wow, it's too cold. Maybe I need to go inside. Maybe I need to prepare better. And other people will find it inspiring and say, look, you know, I don't care that it's cold. I'm, I'm, I'm loving this. And, and just the views that I'm getting from wherever I am are just so amazing. I don't care about the cold. And, and like you said, it, it can, it, the exact same environment and scenario can affect every single person on one trip in a totally different way. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that both of those actions, the the person who's being inspired is a perfectly appropriate way to react to that situation. The person who's being humbled is also a perfectly appropriate way to react to that situation. And I think that's the difference between uh, maybe my comment on the self-help book and the outdoors is because that self-help book is really saying, this is the one way you need to act. And the outdoors is saying, sure, that's one way you can act and it might be okay, but there's also this other way and that's still okay. And then there's this other way. That's okay too. And I think maybe if if the self-help book sat there and said, here's a scenario, what would you do? Okay. That's the right way to react. That would be more along the lines of what the wilderness is doing. It's saying, Hey, you know, you decided to go out to this park on this particular date. It's going to be 105 degrees out there. What are you going to do? And then, and then like you said, it's everybody has their choice of how to react and what to do and how to internalize it. And what, how am I going to use this to grow? or to not grow or whatever it is that they're going to go ahead and use it in whatever way they're going to use it. Whereas the self-help books are saying, this is the only system to use. Meanwhile, they're forgetting the fact that there are whatever, 500 or a thousand or 5,000 books published every single year about this is the only (laughs) system to use. And that's, (laughs) it just doesn't really work. Because if each one's the only system to use, then clearly they wouldn't be publishing that many books. Yeah. Lastly, and I do want to say thank you. Or we'll, I'll say thank you again, but I thank you so much for doing this interview. It has been really phenomenal. The last thing I would ask of you is if you can, do you have one actionable suggestion to put into play right now that can help somebody on their way to greatness? Um, all right. So I will pose the same challenge to your listeners that I posed to uh, my class last week. And that is that I think one of the most basic barriers that we have to really growing is a lot of times we get stuck in our own shells and we like where we're comfortable. We like where we are not really having to expand our social networks or who we interact with or who we learn from. And one of the most basic ways to expand those and to, yeah, maybe feel a little uncomfortable doing it is to go learn the name of somebody who you have passed every day, but you don't actually know who their name is. This is what all of my students have to do this next week. uh, And they're supposed to talk to me about it tomorrow. But they had to go out and they had to go find five people that they see on a regular basis that they've waved to, they've said hi, they've maybe even had some really generic conversation with but they've never actually introduced themselves and asked for that person's name. And I think something so basic as that is part of the way that we interact with people that a lot of individuals have forgotten how to do. Absolutely, uh, We just take for granted that I see you on the bus every day, or you're my, you're my bus driver every day. And I wave to you, but I haven't actually acknowledged you as the person enough to get your name. So I think one of the easiest actionable steps that your listeners could do if they really want to become great is learn how to meet people, learn how to interact with people. You're going to learn from everybody. And so start by getting to know their name. Uh, introduce yourself. Hi, my name's Jerome. What's your name again? And Absolutely. just I love in the course that we were in, um, Jerome kept on, you know, it's I think three days or four days into it, Jerome would be like, well, if anybody doesn't know the name that they're next to on the board, now's the time to awkwardly figure out why you've been in the room with somebody for four days and still don't know their name, right? 
Right? Yep, yep, that definitely happened. And I think that's a great point, you know, to go and expand and, and create this expansion within yourself by putting yourself out there and saying, hey, you know, uh, just what's your name? And and in this day and age, even more so with, with cell phones and where, where people are more and more interacting via text message as opposed to voice, just that simple act of saying, hey, what's your name? Giving people a smile, whatever it is, uh, you know, just expanding yourself into learning how to interact with people in the real world would always be beneficial. Absolutely. I love that. I'm sure that's going to be a very interesting class tomorrow as you listen to everybody talk about their interactions with people that they've seen many, many times and never introduced themselves to. I'm hoping so. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Just want to give a quick shout out and thank you to Michael Spilzinger for leaving a review. He actually messaged me on LinkedIn. This is not actually publicly available, although I put it on the website. He wrote, Just heard your podcast intro episode. As someone who has really struggled with feeling successful in others' perception of me, it really touched me. I am looking forward to the series. Your voice counts. Jump in with the way to greatness and make sure you leave us a review and make sure you hit that subscribe button so we can keep on coming at you again and again. Thank you for listening to the Way to Greatness podcast, where we explore the journey from failure and mediocrity to success and greatness. Keep moving on your way to greatness. Join us next week for more stories, inspirations, and interviews to help you achieve the greatness within you.